Hello, friends. Welcome back to And Also With Y'all. I'm your co-host, James Franklin, and I'm so glad and so grateful you're listening to this podcast. We lift up young adult voices as we wrestle with faith, vocation, racism, and the pandemic. In this episode of Distancing Diaries, co-host Caleb talks with friend the Reverend Laura Brecky Wagner. And one of the things I love about this conversation is how organic and unscripted it is. Caleb and Laura cover everything from campus ministry and their shared hatred of Karl Barth to vulnerable conversation about who Jesus is to them. I hope you enjoy. Everybody. Uh, once again, this is Chaplain Caleb Tabor from the Episcopal Campus Ministries in Raleigh, North Carolina. I work with young adults and college students here in the glorious capital of our um, fairly understated until recently state. Um, I'm so glad you're listening to this. This is another part in the series that we are doing on you know young adult issues and spirituality in the middle of the pandemic. We're calling it Distancing Diaries. And with me today is the wonderful, the fantastic, the marvelous uh, Laura Brecky Wagner. The Reverend Laura Brecky Wagner, yeah? Yes, the Reverend Laura Brecky Wagner. Look at that. So many names. As a Southerner, I feel very comforted by the number of names there, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. Uh, yeah, no, you're good. One of my kids just walked in. <laughs> That's fantastic, actually. Go ahead and like let everybody know, like you know, who you are, what you do, and uh, all that jazz. Absolutely. Uh, so, Reverend Laura Brecky Wagner, I'm a Presbyterian PCUSA minister of Word and Sacrament, and I am the college chaplain at Davis and Elkins College in Elkins, West Virginia. We are historically PCUSA. Uh, liberal arts college we have about 700 undergrads we're very small very very small liberal arts college in the beautiful mountains here in appalachia um and i'm the chaplain to the school both the, the undergraduate student population and to the faculty and staff and i'm an adjunct professor as well an adjunct professor as well i know it yeah i know but i'll let anybody teach a bible class these days i guess <laughs> that's fantastic do you like that part of it i do I am not as organized for that as I thought I would. I, I really enjoy teaching. I really dislike grading papers. Yeah, I feel like uh, I would love the teaching part and hate the grading papers part. Um, Truly. I, yeah. I, every time I meet anybody who's a teacher, I'm just kind of like, oh, well. My husband is a professor, so. Oh, what's he a professor of? Religion and philosophy. Yes, we no, are the religion department. Not. I yeah. love that. I know. We're just little nerds. What can I what's say? It? Okay, so I'm going to take a nerd moment, moment of personal privilege. If James doesn't like it, he can cut it out, but he better not because I know where he lives. Um, what, <laughs> <laughs> what? Religion and philosophy are two great big oceans of, of ideas and concepts and knowledge. That is, I Surely. It is something more focused than that that he specializes in. Indeed, it is. Uh, he is a Talikian scholar. 
to Paul Tillich. He is the most recent past president of the Paul Tillich Society of AAR. So get out of here. You know, Paul <laughs> is my person. Everybody was like, Carl Bart. And I was like, Carl Barf. I want Paul Tillich. Right? <laughs> hey, 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 I'm Presbyterian. Watch out what you say about Carl Bart. Yeah, uh, I know I do. I, it's been, it's been interesting because I didn't know a lot about Tillich before I married my husband and um, he had just published his first monograph. And so yeah. it was deep, deep in it. And now I know a lot about love, love, power, and courage, love, power, and justice, and the courage to be in all of the things. So it's been interesting to be married to an academic and someone who has an academic specialty in a field that I, I wouldn't say I specialize in, but I've had to dip my big toe in as a, as a seminarian. So it's been, it's been good. It's been really helpful. He's better at Greek than I am, so I let him help me with my translations. I love that. So <laughs> I, mean, I have to ask you this: as a as a as a Talikian in a largely Bartian world, those circumstances and circles that I found myself in through time, um, what is it like to finally learn about love and power, <laughs> justice, and the courage to be? Do you feel? I mean, <laughs> uh, well, I condescended to, uh, in Bart's words, condescended to um, his level in order to be present fully from, mm. from my fullness of being. No, it's, it's, it's fun. And as someone who did seminary as not a married person and um, was surrounded by people who were couples in seminary, you and I went to seminary together. So we had a very similar experience, I think. Mm, yeah. um, it's, it was something that I very much wished for to have someone who got it, you know, who understood this unique thing of being a minister, particularly since I don't come from a religious family. So I was like, well, dating sucks. <laughs> and then I come to a small town. I lived in California before where there were lots of people in my peer group that were eligible, but not Christian. And then I come to West Virginia thinking, well, maybe I'm supposed to be single. That'd be great. And then I yeah. meet him. And here we are, and I've got two stepsons and two babies, and oh my goodness, uh, lots of gray hairs. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I know all about the gray hairs. I also have a husband. I don't have any children, but we do have a lot of plants in the house. So you know, I, it's, there's something, I guess. <laughs> and I met your husband. I met him when you guys were dating. So. Yeah, I don't know. You were like right there on the front lines, right? I was. I was. Together, ten years later. I know. Right. Time flies. That's wonderful. So. Um, I'm curious, you know, with everything in your, your background in terms of like spirituality and, and, and like not just being a Christian, but like actively sort of working for Christianity <laughs> in a particular kind of way. Yeah. Um, and with people who are in like kind of a really interesting developmental place in life. How has, has your work changed at all in the, the coronavirus? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think collegiate ministry i mean you, you, this is your realm of ministry too is is such a different space and i think historically a neglected space for ministry the mainline churches in the 60s just said well college is when people don't do religion so we're going to i mean they just pulled out of their funding of ministry you can look at documents and see how many ministries basically went by the wayside and became underfunded and how many schools disaffiliated from their religious roots. And a lot of that is based, you know, in, in the post-World War II boomers going to college and being like, college is animal house, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's not, we don't view college anymore at, from the liberal arts tradition. We've changed that viewpoint of it being a holistic 
approach to education where you're educating the whole person. Mm-hmm. And now it's very much career prep. And so what do you do when you want to bring the good news to students who sometimes have never really heard that you can grow up in a Christian home and not know the good news. Yep. I, that is something absolutely. I have discovered. Is yeah, is, absolutely. Because it can, and and I've, I've seen that too, I think, in ways that um, like there's just sort of people that just don't go that deep into it. And then there's the never heard the good news in that the good news was delivered to you in like a bad or abusive way. Right. Uh, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. It wasn't news. Right. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm really feeling you on that one. Yeah. And, and I think too, you know, you might debate whether or not West Virginia is the South, but certainly it has a lot of the socioeconomic issues. You know, I grew up in, in the Atlanta area and my mom's family is from Alabama. And so, you know, it has a lot of the same socioeconomic issues of, of the Southern region, which is that it's economically depressed and 20% of my students are first generation college students. That's a huge number that aside from, you know, communities that are heavily Latinx, we don't see a lot of uh, you know, huge populations like that, schools that have, have really large populations of first-generation students. So what am I bringing to them, right? In the state that is still predominantly very religious, right, very Christian identifying. And what I've noticed is that just generally, um, they need to know that the good news is good, <laughs> that it's relevant to them, and that Jesus is telling them something, right? And that is all relevant in the coronavirus um, and uh, ways, I'm sorry, we, we cut out a little bit on that last one, that Jesus is what? Is, isn't selling them something. Ah, uh, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things yeah. I've, I've, we've been unpacking with my community, and my community is very much interdenominational community. I have one uh, Presbyterian student, and the rest of them are, I have two recent converts into the Roman Catholic tradition who are very on fire for Roman Catholicism. Um, I have a child who was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I have uh, a couple Methodists and one sort of evangelical, generally speaking, kind you of know, student I, that are on my leadership. You know, we went to a Methodist seminary. My, my, great, my great uncle uh, retired as a United Methodist elder. There are always just kind of a couple of Methodists, aren't there? Like, no matter what. Uh, well, <laughs> West Virginia is a hotbed of Methodism, let me Dang tell it. you. <laughs> uh, in my town of 7,000 people, there's 7,000 people in the, like, region of my town. Not just my town, but, like, the farms and things around my town. 7,000 people. There are, like, seven or eight Methodist churches. I'm just like, y'all. That's too many. That's too many. <laughs> that's more than Baptist churches. Come on now. Say, that's like Baptist churches down here, you know, because I'm from Eflin, North Carolina, and you couldn't, you know, drive two seconds down the road without hitting another Baptist church. I mean, sometimes it's in somebody's backyard, right? Yeah. You know, you yeah. got like the, the Hope Baptist Church and then the Real Hope Baptist Church and then like the More Real Hope <laughs> Baptist. And you can just see where they had their little disagreements and decided right. to. You got the free Baptist, the locked up Baptist. The, <laughs> no, I, it's true. Um, no, and, and it's interesting being part of the, the main line and having gone to Methodist seminary, my, the president of my college, even though we're Presbyterian college, he's Methodist. He's a, an a ordained United Methodist elder, but he's serving now as a college president. And he's lovely. He's wonderful. I really like him. Um, but it's interesting because we can relate to each other as ministers. And so we will occasionally have conversations just in that direction. But it is, yeah, there's a whole, there's, there's always a few Methodists, more than a few where I'm at. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm, um, I'm curious uh, if you've got a lot of first generation college students who are in college right now, mm-hmm. this puts them in something of a precarious situation. Yeah. 
Well, and, you know, I think we have an assumption, middle-class Americans have an assumption that everybody has access, right? That everybody has internet, that everybody has cell phones, that everybody has, and it isn't true. Um, one of the biggest challenges we're facing is that a lot of that 20% of first-generation college students um, and others, right, who maybe have a parent who might have done some college and gotten an associate's, they don't have regular internet. And some of that's cost. Some of that's because we live in the mountains. And anybody who's lived in, in Western North Carolina, right, we, we share that same mountain range. There are places up in Holler where you can't get internet. You just can't. And there are parts of the state where you internet, wireless internet is banned because they do, the Green Bank Observatory is the largest, I think it's radio telescope in the world. And you can't have any interference. They can't have radio stations. They can't have wireless internet. They can't have cell phones. I mean, so we've right. got a lot of technological issues that Which make in, it in hard. some instances, those technological issues before could be resolved by like going to a coffee shop or like going to an internet yeah. cafe. But now they can't do that either, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that also assumes that you have your own laptop. It assumes you have a smartphone. It assumes you have regular access to these things, that you have a regular safe home environment. You know, we've, one of the big issues in our state right now is uh, particularly for our K-12 population, but this includes our college student population, we have minors that don't have a way of getting out of unsafe environments. And with an opioid epidemic, what do you do? So it makes ministry a very different beast, right? It makes ministry, uh, when before, my work was helping people deepen their relationship with Jesus and helping them develop their own identity right? Away from mom and dad and grandma and grandma, you know, and all, the community that raised them. What is your identity when you choose it for yourself? That was the heart of the work that I was doing. And in a lot of ways, giving people tools to study the Bible that were grounded in scholarship and... <laughs> um, yeah, and not the Schofield commentary, right? <laughs> correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or just what my Baptist pastor who never finished, you know, high school told me because that's what the Holy Spirit told him kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I could go, I could tell you tales. Um, yeah. It's fascinating. Just a quick note because, you know, like we both work in like higher ed environments. I'm fascinated by like how quasi shamanistic a lot of evangelical Christianity is. <gasps> Uh, My goodness. Well, and just how much theology they borrow and they don't realize this, oh, this yeah. um, you know, when we talk about, when you hear evangelicals talk about the Bible and how every single word is sacred and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, friends, that, that theology belongs in Islam. It's a beautiful theology, right? But it's not a Christian theology. Right. <laughs> you borrowed it. <laughs> yeah. And you need to acknowledge that this is not right. Cause Christians understand that human beings wrote the Bible over thousands of years. We, every Christian, every ancient Christian tells us this. Mm -hmm. uh, Augustine talks about, I mean, these are not new concepts. So when we talk about inerrancy, we're not talking about the words on the page being perfectly written and never having a flaw. We're talking about the message of the gospel being true for all time. And when I mention those things, people lose their minds. And I'm like, well, maybe you're idolaters and you're worshiping the book and not hey, yeah. who the book reveals, Which my is, friends. Who better, who better to cure them of idolatry than a Presbyterian minister? What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? No, but that's interesting. Ooh. When I was in Virginia Seminary, because I'm an, I'm an Episcopal priest, and um, I won't say that we're pretentious sometimes, but... Sometimes these things happen. I like to call my Anglican year finishing school um, because apparently Emory University alone wasn't enough. Um, the dean of the divinity school did say, he said, we're not actually people of the book. We are people of a life. Like, well, and that's true though, because I mean, yeah. if you go back and we're reading Acts to my older two boys. So my, my older two stepsons are in just finished 
fourth and sixth grade. And we're, you know, trying to do some church education at home, which is a whole different interesting conversation about how you do church education when you're a church person. But, you know, we're we're reading Acts and the church was called the way. And there's something to that, that I, I think, you know, and this could be a future podcast conversation you have with, with whomever, but what I think the coronavirus is showing us is that we weren't really, we were looking at Christian faith as being people of a book yes, and not people of a way. Right. And I think there's some value there um, because yeah. most Christians throughout history have been illiterate. I mean, the book was relevant in that it taught us stories that we then used to shape our lives, right? Go look in a cathedral. The stained glass is there to teach stories. Um, And so now that we're in a a season where, okay, you can't go to your Sunday school Bible study group and okay, you know, your Sunday morning worship or your Sunday evening worship, if you're cool and you're going to, you know, your folk service or whatever. Um, I mean, we have (laughs) Sunday night worship with my my college students. So I say that in love, but you know, your edgy, uh, you know, warehouse meeting, 5 p.m. Sunday acoustic guitar service. Yeah. Right? You can't do that anymore. Then what do you do? As a, what makes you a Christian? What, make, what, what does Christianity even mean? And I think one of my hopes has been we're getting back to the way, mm. right? I'm not a Christian because I listen to a sermon on Sunday mornings. Right. In fact, I haven't been, frankly, because it hasn't fed me. That just hasn't it has, it has not fed my need. Um, I have been listening to good podcasts that have made me think, and I've been teaching my kids, you know, mm-hmm. um, we're reading through the book of Acts together. And I've been thinking about what does it mean? And what does it mean to model to college students the way? So just, and to, that, just to clarify, when you say your kids, you mean like the college students or do you mean like your personal children? My personal children. Yeah. Cause okay. I don't see my college students right, uh, right. as often. Yeah. yeah, to my to my children who live at home with me, okay, <laughs> my, my four, yeah, my, <laughs> the wagon load of Wagners. What can I say? Oh, I love it. But I think it's important to ask ourselves, you know, what does that mean? What will that look like on the other side? Because my hope is that a silver lining of this horrible situation is we change, or or we are invited into um, a reformation, if you will. Because I think the church needs it. And um, I think well, for my college students, they're hungry for something authentic that's more than just on Sunday mornings. They're hungry for uh, a place where they don't feel like they're being sold something. Well, and you know, the thing I, yeah, I've kind of come across a little bit in what I'm doing, which I didn't start doing campus ministry until January of this year. Uh, so I had previous experience with it, but this particular job, I came right out of the out of the congregation and boy whoo, what a what a time um mm. i've been working for like two months before a pandemic um <laughs> but you know one of the things that i'm thinking about is um you know a sunday service isn't necessarily the most spiritually meaningful thing especially for people who who aren't who didn't grow up going to church um yes it it doesn't you know, they always say, well, why Sunday? You know, and it's like, oh, there's a good question. Um, you know, and I have like an answer for it, but it's mostly like an anthropological answer, right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's not necessarily like, oh, you know, this divinely ordained sort of thing. Yeah, it, <laughs> just, just sort of thinking about like the situation and, and what it means to, what it means to be connected when you can't be together in person. 
right? Yeah. So I've been yeah. getting like a lot of play out of like the whole notion of like the communion of saints, like on earth and have like that kind of connection of, like to one another, like Christ's body and things like that. I used to work with the Jesuits at the Jesuit university. And I really deeply love the spiritual exercises and the Ignatian spirituality of your consolations and desolations and imaginative prayer. I mean, there's just some richness there that being a very reformed Presbyterian, <laughs> we've lost a lot of the, those those spiritual practices. And so offering uh, ways to do contemplative prayer where I give them some different tools, both specifically Christian tools, but then some non-Christian tools, because not all of my students are Christian. And my job as a chaplain is not to make everyone Christian, right? That's a difference between if I was in a congregation or I was an off-campus minister to being a, a chaplain to a college. My job is to accompany every student uh, where they are. And if that's on Team Jesus, hooray, hallelujah. If that's not, my job isn't to make them on Team Jesus. So that's been an interesting space in this crisis because my fallback is, well, the goodness of the Lord and, and the sovereignty of God in the midst of all this. And not everybody believes in God or believes in God the way that I do. Right. Um, but I found that I can adapt some of those really ancient prayer practices. I've also encouraged folk to do have artistic expressions. Um, there's doodling prayer and different things like that that I have found for different communities is much healthier. And then I offer a weekly seven-minute Bible reflection called the Wednesday Word. We're working through the Lord's Prayer. So that, but you'd have to have enough internet to watch that seven-minute video. Right. And right. those are some of the pieces, you know, I do pastoral care um, meetings via virtual means um, weekly with lots of different people, but not everybody's access. So it's sort of a moving target and recognizing that you're not going to do it perfectly mm -hmm. and they're going grace because it's hard. Most of my, my students have communities they're coming from. Not all of them are wonderful, but most of them have, have family that is supportive or a home congregation that is being supportive and can reach them in a way that I can't always, you know, especially if they live out of state or they're international. I have a lot of international students who come to play sports and a lot of them are, are leaning into their local communities too. And that's good. I'm trying to support that as well. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense. As we sort of wrap things up here, I just have two more questions for you. And they're little ones. They're little questions, I guess, probably big answers. But the answer can be as big or as small as you want it to be, all right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> the first one is a kind of more personal question, and the next one's going to be kind of a more professional one. So the more personal one is, uh, you said you grew up in a secular household. Why religion? And <laughs> why Jesus is the first. Ooh. Well, how much time do you have? Um, the, the short version of that is my whole life, I felt the presence of a greater being in my life, always. Um, there is a story my dad likes to tell of I was six or seven or eight during Operation Desert Storm. And my father is uh, retired from the military and was an art professor, actually. And um, all of the males in my family have served in the military. And so we had, you know, CNN or whatever. 100% hours news network, you know, on during Operation Desert Storm. And I even distinctly remember standing in our living room, there was a blue couch and saying we should pray for those soldiers. Now my parents were not the ones who were encouraging me to do that. And I may have, you know, picked it up from a neighborhood kid or something, but that memory and that moment that I was so compelled to want to pray for people who I thought needed it, um, 
has kind of been my whole life. I've been interested in religion generally. Uh, and when we, I was at Candler considered doing a PhD just in religious studies uh, broadly and looking at comparative religions because I think they're fascinating. How do people uh, make sense of the world and interact with this divine spiritual whatever? I find that infinitely more interesting than philosophy and infinitely meaningful. Why Jesus, the shortest answer I can give is that if religion is completely created by humans, I like this mythology best. Mm. Now, I don't believe that. Yeah, sure, <laughs> um, sure. But I, I do love the notion that God cared enough about creation to put on skin mm. and, in the words of Karl Barth, condescend to humanity, right? To come from this infinite space to a finite space. Yeah. When, that's, when God went and moved precisely to be ungodlike, right? To die is exactly the opposite of what gods do. Um, and the fact that uh, in my faith, God chose to live and die and feel pain, which is not what gods are supposed to do, lent a, a weight of truth. And um, Christianity is hard, man. If you, if you really want to live the way, it means not having a bunch of stuff and you don't get to be a jerk to people who are a jerk to you. And oh, especially when it's just the most satisfying to do it. Right. Oh man. <laughs> you know, there are moments where I, I have a, I have a habit of when I really just want to tell someone off, I take a shower and I like in my, my brain while I'm showering, tell them off everything I'd want to say to like mm-hmm. burn them. So I don't actually say any of it. You know, because like snarkiness and cynicism and sarcasm aren't Christian values. I mean, we're supposed to be um, vulnerable and we're supposed to be uh, authentic and gentle. And those are defense mechanisms, right? Where, where we can send those little barbs out. And I'm, you know, I'm all those things. The fact that there's a tradition that encourages me to be vulnerable um, to the point even of potentially giving my life for someone else that um, spoke of a truth that was so much deeper. And I explored a lot of religions and I spent a lot of time in other faiths and I'm not saying there isn't truth in other faiths, but the most truth that I encountered, I, I felt was in Christianity and the most compelling relationship with God came through Jesus Christ. And I had very visceral experiences of Jesus as I was on this journey. So, uh, yeah, that's the short answer. I could spend a long time talking about it. Oh, that's a wonderful answer. And, you know, I really do like kind of where you were going with that. Um, a lot of times we don't think about aggression and anger as being a burden. It's a burden to a person. And maybe that's one of those burdens. That's not the cross we have to pick up and, and, and bear and follow Jesus with. That's one of the burdens maybe we need to put down, you know, because yeah. we are weary and heavy laden with these things that just rip us apart and rip other people apart. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. But that's, yeah. A hard, that's a hard burden to lay down. Um, yeah. Well, and if you think about the word sarcasm, sarks means to cut, right? Sarcasm mm-hmm. means to rend. Mm-hmm. You cut with words and it's a defense. And all those pieces for me, you know, when you think about Jesus, you know, I, I just am so compelled by the life he invites us to live, knowing that I will never fully, you know, I'm never going to stop being sarcastic, but I can help soften myself. You know, I'm never going to not be angry at stuff, right? We should be angry at injustice, but I shouldn't carry that all the time. Well, uh, I think you're right. how, can you, how can you use things like sarcasm as a means to point to the truth without like 
causing harm, right? Because sometimes things like sarcasm point out a bigger, right? like a bigger problem. Like it's a good way to point yes. out a mammothly looming sin or, or, or destructive, destructive thing in the room while putting it in a way that maybe people understand it might be a little more engaged by it. But if you use the sarcasm to just tear people down, that's a totally different that's like a, that's a totally different thing. <laughs> um, just to kind of loop back to when I was talking about those ancient prayer practices, one of the things I really like about the Jesuit tradition um, of of the spiritual exercises is they have a they encourage a reflective space, and some Jesuits will do it two or three times a day, some do it once a day. They all do it at least once a week, where you look at your consolations and desolations. This is your your you know. Uh, peaks and valleys, your thorns and roses, and where have you felt love in your day, and where have you felt lack of love? And all we, you ask yourself these questions, and then you begin to say, okay, where are the patterns? Because if you do this process regularly, you'll realize, oh, when I feel uncomfortable, I react this way, and it's a pattern, and maybe I should, you know, it's this, yeah, it's self-improvement, and you can say it's very Brene Brown, whatever, but it's deeper because you're asking what lesson is Jesus teaching you or where are you finding Christ in the middle of, of these consolations and desolations? And I just don't think we've had, you know, post reformation, you know, Christianity has lost. so much. I mean, you're an Anglican, right? You're in the Anglican tradition that hasn't lost all of that. But as a, as a Protestant, mm-hmm. very reformed Protestant, I love my reformation theology. I love being reformed. I love being a protest and right. I like to put the protest back into Protestant, right? Um, <laughs> there I am, you know, but we, we, in many ways, lost some of that, I don't want to say necessarily mystical, but that contemplative edge that reminded us that there's well, that holy edge, throughout. That contemplative edge didn't really even resurface in the Protestant tradition. I mean, there were some blips on the radar in, you know, Church of England, Anglican, the Episcopalian tradition, but it didn't really, really, really resurface hardcore until Quakers showed up. And the thing is, they just reformed so much, they got rid of literally everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, so I think, one of the, I, I think one of the things about like the Reformation is, is you know, you can kind of think about it in two ways. Um, one, you can think about it as a historical moment. And you can be totally beholden to everything that like, you know, fell out of Martin Luther's mouth. And God help you if that's how you think about it, because a lot happen there. Or you can be beholden to all of the um, real complexities that uh, John Calvin presented. And when I found out he was a lawyer, that really made a lot of things make a lot more Oh, sense. yes. <laughs> it's true. Um, he was never ordained. I'm like, oh, this is all the rules without any of the like softness of pastoral care. But you can also think about it as like a, as an impulse to constantly be examining things for yes. um, where have we gone wrong? Where can we improve? Um, and then I think part of the thing about the Reformation is, is definitely being able to look at the tradition you're in and say, you know, where have we kind of veered off in a direction we don't need to go down anymore? And how can we do something different? Yeah. Well, Reformata Simper Reformanda. I mean, the church reform and always reforming. Yeah, no, um, exactly right. And, you know, where, and in some cases in Protestantism, it isn't just necessarily throwing things away, but like maybe saying, hey, where did we like throw the baby out with the bathwater? Right. Mm-hmm. Like maybe we went a little too heavy handed there. So now the, the final question here for you is in a pandemic that is disproportionately affecting people that already have a hard time in life in a lot of different ways in a pandemic that is inspiring all kinds of 
conspiracy theories and cult-like beliefs around uh, certain political leaders. In a pandemic that is sort of exposing the fact that the economy, um, less like the machine that drives society, is a little bit more like Frankenstein's monster that got away. Mm. Where is God? Mm. Well, God is in the midst. I mean, Mm. God is with every one of my hungry students asking why those with abundance aren't doing more. And God is with every abundant person sitting at a table where maybe their soul feels empty and they're saying there's more, you know, you, you can be fed by feeding others. God is weeping. God is protesting. God is resisting protests. You know, I think the hardest thing when we see clear lines, or at least we perceive that we see, see clear lines of what's right and what's wrong is to assume God is on our side. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that God is, is not because even though there are clear rights and wrongs and God is always for the oppressed and is always for justice, it doesn't mean that God abandons those who are committing acts of injustice. Mm-hmm. And so I think as we think about, you know, God is not a great cosmic care bearer who is going to answer our prayers with everything we want because um, God's not Santa. We are invited into a deeper relationship of a God who abides. You know, God doesn't promise to fix it for us. Right. And if we read scripture, we find that God does not fix it for the faithful, right? I mean, that they, God often adds complexities and challenges, but that what comes from that deep relationship with God is abiding joy, abiding hope, um, clarity in the midst of really difficult situations. Yes, we have salvation and the hope of heaven, absolutely, but that I think pales to the presence and the peace that knowing that God abides with you offers in this life. We are, we are called in, our, in the Lord's Prayer to pray that God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, not that we eventually arrive in God's kingdom when we're dead, right. but that, that that God's kingdom comes now. And so in the midst of a crisis, a massive crisis, in which all of our injustices and, and structural systems of sin and oppression are being laid bare, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. We, you can't really deny that we have a structural inequality system when, you know, workers are being paid $7 an hour and they're, and they're on the front lines without health insurance. That's a system of inequality. And God is with those workers and God is with those employers and God is with the shoppers, abiding with them where they are and inviting them into a relationship that will offer them peace and hope. And for those that are oppressed by systems of oppression, um, a hope for freedom. And those who are oppressed by the sin of thinking that it's okay to be oppressors, right? Liberation too, right? Liberation for all of creation. And that, man, again, going back to why am I a Christian, that my oppressor can be liberated. That's not something I like. And it challenges me, but that hope of liberation for everyone, every part of creation speaks truth and grace in ways that I don't think any other faith I've read really can speak to. So Mm. God abides. God abides. That's wonderful. You must be a, you must be a minister or something. (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I love that. Um, So my dad's a Quaker and I've always been like, Ooh, Quakers are fun. And one of the things I really sort of, take from that is um, the notion of going from what Jesus said about the kingdom of heaven being within 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not even necessarily something that you have to wait for. It's something that you are missing because you're not looking for it. Right. It's already there, right? Just like yeah. the coin the woman's looking for, right? Yep. Um, yep. So anyway, thank you so much. Thank you. Like, oh, this is a joy. I loved this. Um, you know, and I may be doing like some more episodes on this podcast, so I might hit you up again because, you know, like you Anytime. Stuff. That's always <laughs> awesome. like, like I can just kind of sit back and let the wisdom of someone else just like wash over me. And, you know, that's part of my job. So um, <laughs> it's a great best, part of the job. <laughs> to you, to Thank your you. husband, your children, and all of the people um, that your, your life touches in wonderful and graceful ways. Thank you so much. And the same to you. Thank you, darling. for this episode of and also with y'all a word of gratitude for reverend wagner and caleb for letting us be a part of this conversation for more information or if you're searching for a spiritual home or greater connection check out the yeah nc app y-e-a-h-n-c and you'll find links to small groups other podcasts and christian meditations Visit us online at www.episdionc.org. Thanks a lot for listening. God be with you.